I was on the sideline of an under-17 girls state league soccer match, and I said a few things to the referee, and I was given a warning. <laughs> but I had to leave early to get back for the father-daughter dance, and so some of the older girls said, we dare you, Coach Jim, get yourself thrown out, and we'll buy you menchies afterwards. And then when you have to leave anyway, you're just going, you had to leave early anyway, so I apologize to the referees. Um, I used to be one. Um, Hold that children's illustration in your heart as we go forward. Because as we'll see in a second, this passage, and I tried to put it in your outline, it's a very complicated passage, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not an easy text. Um, but I think it's got a really clear command that governs the whole chapter. And, and hold that command in the center of your mind, your heart. That's why it's the very first thing there in verse 1. It's in your outline because I don't want us to lose sight of the central point as we navigate what Paul's going to talk about with regards speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so uh, I hope that that might help you. Um, in the preaching workshops that we do, oftentimes we'll use 1 Corinthians 13, which we preached on last Lord's Day, as a sample passage to preachers to say, if you do your work in the context, the meaning of the passage is going to become that much more clear and powerful. And I hope you felt that a little bit last week. I've had some of you come to me and say, well, that was a different take on 1 Corinthians. No, it's not. Not on chapter 13. We just did it in its context. And that changes everything from reading it outside of its context. And so that's what we did last week. It's a rather simple text, but it would be a cruel joke at a preaching workshop to ask a brother to prepare an outline on 1 Corinthians 14 and say, why don't you uh, preach that at a preaching workshop and show us how you would handle that passage? That would be mean. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. It's going to look at a complicated text of scripture. You know, sometimes Paul is hard to understand. In fact, at the very end of his second letter, the apostle Peter says this, his very last words that we have in, our, in the canon of Scripture, Peter says this. He said, Our beloved, beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters. There are some things in them that are very hard to understand. That's what Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, said of Paul. I would like to think that Peter had 1 Corinthians 14 on his mind when he said that. I've labored this week. I sent a picture to some of you of just notes everywhere and some commentaries in books. And I have as much Sharpie marker on my notes as I do words. Just saying, no, I don't think I have that right. That's not, nope, I got to take that out. I don't even want to think it. So Sharpie marker, let's, let's not. I've been wrestling and reading. And I just hope that we will see that preaching through God's scripture sequentially helps us understand important things for the church of God even the complex passages like this one. So I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we'll read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 25. Lord, I ask your help this morning, not just for me, but for the hearer of this time in your word. Even the point of this text, Lord, is that we should speak intelligibly in such a way that others can understand, and so we ask you to help us to understand what's here and why it's a value for us to do this. Lord, thank you for the simple, beautiful text that we looked at last Lord's Day on love and how it relates to spiritual gifts. But now we come here, clearly Paul wants us to understand a very important truth from you, but he's also addressing something that was very important in the city of Corinth, in the church at Corinth. Help us to parse through that. Would you then apply it to our lives and would we leave here impacted, influenced, changed by your word? That's our prayer we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? 
hear God's word read. It's a large section of scripture. Would we attend to it? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of a strange tongue and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of God. God. And isn't that what we want? God is really among you. Notice Paul is going to write this letter about the word being spoken by servants full of his spirit. And that's when outsiders say God's there. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. Please be seated. I'd preach faster and you'd listen more intently if I made you stand the whole time. Sorry about that. So the first question, naturally, after a reading like that, those 25 verses, I would think the question is, what is going on here? Maybe that's a question you have. Let me ask you not to let that be your first question. How about this question? What are you doing here? As in you, as in here. It's a much better first question this morning. You have been made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
You've been saved by God's redemptive love in Christ, by grace through faith. Christ who gave up his rights for you, his life for you. He became sin for you that you might be considered the righteousness of God before himself. And then he teaches us all through scripture. That means you're called and set apart to be a part of his people on this earth called the church. And if that is you, why are you here? To do what verse one commands us to do. That's why. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual maturity for the building up of the church. Is that why you're here? Is that why folks will be here at the next service? Pursue love. The love defined for us in chapter 13 right before this. And, and, and as we pursue love, we're called to earnestly desire spiritual maturity. Now, you may read in the ESV there, the translation spiritual gifts. We've gone through this a few times the last couple of weeks, but let me remind you. There's two different words that are used in this letter about spiritual gifts. The one word that's not in this text is charismata. That actually is the word spiritual gifts, as in opening a present. That's charismata. This is the Greek word pneumatikon. And, and, and so the best really way to translate it is, is probably spiritual things or spiritual persons. Or I wrote spiritual maturity because it's kind of tricky. So pursue love and earnestly desire to do spiritual things. To be spiritually mature, that's what Paul is saying here. How do we do that? Well, by earnestly desiring not to do something for myself, not to build up myself, but to do something much more broad, much more beautiful, much bigger. In fact, it requires me to die to myself, to do something for the common good. And I think the word Paul uses, I know it, it's used seven times in this chapter. He says, you ought to be doing what you do for the building up of the church. That, that word for building up is seven times in this chapter, okay? It's in verse 3, twice in verse 4, it's in verse 5, verse 12, verse 17, and it'll start next week's text, verse 26. Can't miss that. That's what Paul is about. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual maturity for the building up of the body. Don't lose sight of that primary command as we wade into the depth of this text about tongues and prophecy. I want you to look at verse 3. While Paul is talking about prophecy there, he uses some other words to define building up. So we ought to be pursuing every gift that we could use for the glory of God and the upbuilding of his people. You see that in verse 3. Also for encouragement, that's another word. That's the word for comfort. It's the word paraclesis, which from which we get the word Holy Spirit, paraclete, comforter. And then the third word is for consolation. I found an interesting description of that word consolation this week, um, almost for whispering. To come alongside someone you love and you whisper in their ear, not to fear. You're going to be okay. Have bold confidence. Have calm boldness. It's that whispering consolation. So Paul is saying, if you want to pursue the love described in chapter 13, then you ought to be about pursuing spiritual maturity. And that looks like doing, with the gifts God gives you, the work of building up the body of Christ. And as you'll see from the children's illustration as well as the text, Paul says God wants us all to desire to use our words for that end. Now, what was going on in Corinth? Remember with me that Corinth is not the most unified church. For us, it's taken us a long time to read this letter, but picture them sitting there and reading this letter in one sitting. 
When this letter intersected them, it intersected them in their place of immaturity. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I wish I could write to you as spiritually mature people, but you're babies. You're divided. You're full of yourself. You're really not interested in the common good of others. The way you take the Lord's Supper is to exclude some and to promote others. Let that all be on on a big pile as we read this, because it's taking us months to read it. For them, it was just bam. And so here he comes and he says, ultimately, when you gather in worship, it's, it's got this vibe of noise and chaos. And so all of 14 is kind of trying to set in order a better view of maturity and a better view of worship. And we know that they had written to Paul about spiritual gifts. Remember, he'd received a letter from them. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning the things you wrote about, you know, you wrote to me about spiritual gifts. And so... At one level or another, we know this church had written Paul a letter and said, help us understand how are we supposed to use spiritual gifts and the the ones they must have asked him about. Paul, we want to understand spiritual, uh, speaking in tongues and prophecy. Help us understand how that's supposed to look. And so here we have this chapter. He says, when you gather together, you should not be desiring above all other gifts the gift of tongues. Rather, you should be desiring to use your mind to speak God's word to intersect the mind of another. And he uses the word prophecy to describe that. So if you see your outline that I've given to you, um, we're going to spend the bulk of our time trying to understand what is prophecy, what are tongues, and how, what was going on then, and how does it relate to us now. That's the bulk of this sermon. Then even though verse 6 to 25, I kind of say is the big appeal, that's going to be a short section of our time together where I just say, let's kind of understand the picture here. And let's, that's going to deepen his argument, and then we'll culminate at the end. So what does it mean to prophesy in Corinth at that time? Remember that. In Corinth at that time, okay? Well, first thing he says is prophecy is something that the church, all of them, should desire. We see that in verse 1, in verse 5. It'll be again next week, verse 39. So what is prophecy? Well, it's different than teaching. It's different than preaching. As one commentator, Richard Gaffin, says, uh, prophecy is to receive a revelation by God's Spirit, that is then spoken to build up his church. That's prophecy. Let me say that again. It is a revelation by God's spirit that is then spoken to build up his church and it's clearly understood by the recipients of that message. Now, this is different than the the prophets of old. Here's what I mean by that. Well, some were called to speak for God to all of his people at a season of time. I think of Samuel the prophet. God raised him up. The word of God was rare in those days and he raised up Samuel the prophet and Samuel was the mouthpiece of God to all of Israel in that time. And that's how we should think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Certainly Moses was the great prophet and we're told that one who's gonna come after him would be greater than Moses was. That's Jesus who's the word made flesh, the great prophet. So this is different than the prophets of old. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says that long ago, At many times, God spoke to our forefathers by prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so we know the whole New Testament is giving testament to Jesus being the final word of God revealed for God's people. So in that regard, the prophets of old have ceased. That's the way the New Testament would help us to understand that. So in Corinth at that time, understand with me, they they had no written New Testament. 
They had the Old Testament word that had been revealed, but they lived in an oral culture. So what Paul is basically saying is, I wish that all of you would desire to receive God's word and then speak that word to others. It is about revelation. I believe that Paul is talking here in this chapter to the original audience, which is the church at Corinth. So then we step back and say, well, what is this like then? Is this like Paul saying everybody's supposed to be a preacher? No, that's preaching, teaching, they're different gifts. All through the New Testament, it's, it's differentiated from prophecy, and we know God gave various gifts. So maybe this is like Joel chapter 2, which is quoted in Acts chapter 2, in which after Peter stood and preached at Pentecost, he quoted from Joel, and, and in Joel, the prophet said this. He said, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, they will all prophesy. And then he goes on and he says, even on your male servants and on your female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they will all prophesy. So this is something that's, that's not like a preacher or a teacher. This is something that every male, female, servant, son, daughter ought be desiring. So what would the Corinthian church hear when Paul said this? I think they'd hear this. Prophecy is something they should hope for. And it's speaking the word of God given to them by the spirit of God to be shared with the people of God. Okay, that's what's going on in Corinth. It's not just like a preacher preaching. It's also not just talking. So as one commentator said, a church in which everybody was a preacher would be a nightmare. Would you agree with that? And manifestly not what Paul wanted for the church at Corinth. Equally, it's very easy to empty the gift of prophecy of its unique, immediate, and distinctive content. It then becomes nothing more than sanctified common sense. It's not that either. Prophecy to the original hearers in Corinth would be speaking the word of God revealed to them by the Spirit of God to the people of God. All right, I'm going to get to our day and age in a little bit, so just hold that thought. What is speaking in tongues here? I know this is a very different sermon, so this is me trying to be an educator or something. It's been a tough, long week trying to understand all this. I'm thankful for it. Let's let the Bible def define what tongues are here for the church in Corinth. First thing, it's a gift. We read that also in chapter 12, verse 10. Second thing, tongues are addressed to God, not to others. That's explicit in verse 2. Notice that. Tongues are addressed to God, not to others. Verse 3 Paul says, tongues build up the self, not others. That's verse four, excuse me. So this doesn't necessarily mean that tongues mean you're selfish. It means there's only one benefactor, the one who speaks in tongues because others can't understand you. Fourthly, tongues are unintelligible. We read in verse two that tongues, as Paul's describing them, they bypass the mind. That you utter mysteries only known to the spirit. That's what Paul says. You read it again in verse 19 when Paul kind of does this contrast. He says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind that I understand than 10,000 in a tongue that I and the people to whom I speak cannot understand. So it's unintelligible. All right. Nextly, tongues as described here are also revelatory. They're revelation from God. You need to understand that. If there's an interpreter... To, to make sense of the tongue that is being spoken, then Paul is saying that interpretation is a word from God, therefore it's just like prophecy. So it's a little bit less efficient, but ultimately prophecy is still expected. All right. 
There's this nice little book by Richard Gaffin called uh, Perspectives on Pentecost, New Testament Teachings on the Gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was very helpful this week. And here's what Gaffin says. He says, when we read in this passage, in the Spirit, to speak in the Spirit, it's not some deeper primal personality that's too deep for intelligible words. It's not talking about your spirit or my spirit having this deeper part of ourselves that when speaking in tongues were to happen, we access it. No, he's saying, no, it's the Spirit of God communicating without using conventional language. That's what Paul's talking about here, is what Gaffin would say. What else does Paul say here? And I'll explain even more as we go. He says, understand, this is desirable. That's what he says to the church at Corinth. I desire you to do this. Now, I desire even more that you prophesy, but it is desirable. He even says in verse 18, I'm thankful I speak in tongues more than any of you do. But it's desirable only in so much as it will be for the building up of the church. It's never meant for private building up of self. I think it's very clearly obvious as I've been studying this week that there is no way that out of this chapter we, could, we should come out of it and say that there should be a consuming preoccupation with the private devotional use of tongues. Because Paul's, the whole point of the chapter is everything should be done for the building up of the body. Tongues, as Paul describes them here, they require interpretation. So let's try to picture this. With tongues, a person speaks to God, mysteries in the spirit that that person cannot understand. It bypasses their mind. Their mind is not active. Verse 14 says their mind is unfruitful. The interpretation then that Paul says you should pray for is not someone standing there saying, I know exactly what the prayer just said. The interpretation is God responding to a prayer that the person doesn't know, and now you have divine revelation in response to the word that's spoken. That's why most commentators, as I was understanding this this week, would say, and when that interpretation comes down from God, it actually would have that revelatory character which makes it just like prophecy. So that's why tongues and prophecy are synced up in this chapter. Because both are revelatory in the way Paul is talking about them to his 1 Corinthians audience, okay? Now understand, this is different than Acts chapter 2. So if you know your Bible, remember Pentecost? Jesus said to his disciples, go and wait, the Holy Spirit's going to come down upon you. And when the Spirit came down upon them, it came down with a blowing wind. And we read that tongues came down as fire on top of them. They spoke languages they did not know. There were people there in Jerusalem from every tribe and every nation. And without any interpreter, they understood the tongues that were being spoken. That is very different than what's happening in Corinth. This isn't a place out in public where there's a gathering of people from the nations. This is inside the local gathering at the church in Corinth where people are speaking and interpretations required or it's just noise. It's just noise. Now, we were talking in our family this week. In some ways, we don't get permission in this chapter to say that they're not speaking tongues in a known language. It could be a known language, could be heavenly language. We see in chapter 13, verse 1, when Paul says, if I speak in the tongue of men or of angels without love. So there's this sense in which Paul is saying there is heavenly as well as earthly tongues, so to speak. But just because Paul's saying that people don't understand the word being spoken by the Spirit doesn't mean it's not exactly like Acts chapter 2. And it's known language, just no one's there to interpret it. Because in Acts chapter 2, what did the people say who heard all the people speaking in tongues? They said, man, are they drunk? Are you out of your minds? Acts chapter 2. And yet, what do we read here? We read the same thing. We read in chapter 14, 
of verse 2 that there are some who are going to not understand at all. So it could be heavenly tongues. It could be languages that are known languages. But the point is to the speaker as well as to the hearer, their mind is bypassed. Okay. Now, hang with me. We're going to get to much more real application here. What was going on in Corinth that they desired tongues so dominantly compared to other gifts of the Spirit? What was going on? Well, think with me about in the New Testament church the value of tongues, evidencing God's work. Tongues of fire came down at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter went and talked to Cornelius' family, Cornelius was a Gentile. What happened when they professed faith in the gospel? All of a sudden, they too had the evident gift of the Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. So if you read through Acts, or if you've been listening to our contextualized podcast, we've been just seeing that in the New Testament apostolic era, when God's Spirit was wanting to make himself evidence, it came through signs of healing as well as signs of tongues. So of course the Corinthian church would long for this. Yet you have to also remember they came out of many pagan traditions. And we have throughout the New Testament evidences that even these pagans, they would have these ecstatic utterances that no one could understand, that they would just be babbling, and it would be evident to them that the God they worshipped was real and was really present. And so Corinthians, the Corinthian church went into this saying, this is the highest evidence that God's at work among us. Mix that with their love of themselves and their immaturity Next thing you know, you have people who say, I have a revelation from God. Whether it's in a known language, I'm going to speak prophecy to you, and you just have to believe that it came from me. I'm important in God's kingdom. You need to listen to me. Or they speak in a tongue that evidences God must be among them. No interpreters there. It's just noise. But they're building themselves up. And Paul in this chapter says there is no place for that in Christian worship. It's amazing to to me that chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts, and what did we look at last Sunday? What's smack in the middle? A chapter on love. And so what you have going on in Corinth is Paul is saying, to many of you, speaking in tongues is what you have determined, predetermined, is what evidences your maturity. That is wrong. That is upside down. That is backwards. The most excellent way to evidence your maturity is the love that God has given to you that you then give to others. And then in 14, he says the most excellent way you can evidence that love is by speaking words that build other people up that make sense to them. All right, now, you've probably been a little perplexed here because what I'm trying to show you is that in this chapter, Paul does not dismiss or delegitimate tongues for his audience, the, the Corinthian church. In this chapter, he doesn't, not to his original audience. Well, what about us here and now? Now what? Well, first thing you have to believe with us, I think you sense it every week, is we believe this is God's revealed authoritative word. And we believe that Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2 tells us that the prophets of old used to give, receive revelation from God, but God has finally and fully revealed himself through his Son. And the whole of the New Testament points back to the incarnation of Jesus and gives sense to it of those who were given that apostolic gospel and walked with him. And so we would say that we do not believe that God is in the business right now of adding momentary revelation to what he's already fully revealed of the gospel of his son in his scriptures for his people. And so what is prophecy now to us then? Here's a definition I would ask you to use. It's speaking the word of God that has been revealed by the Spirit of God that helps us understand it to the people of God. 
So for the people in Corinth, they were saying, we want to receive a word from you to then speak to others. We are saying, we have a word from you. And prophecy to us is to, to know it, to have your spirit give us wisdom to be able to speak it one to another. And so I would join the apostle Paul here. And as I listened to one sermon this week, one of my friends preaching it in a different context completely, he said, he said this, he said, allow your, me to speak on behalf of the elders of your church, of our church, and I'll do the same thing. We wish that all of you did this. Isn't that what Paul says here? I wish all of you, I wish all of you spoke prophetically to one another. Hear me say that, Christ Community Church. I wish you all did this. Some of you do. You regularly study God's word. You love his word. You're trying to be given wisdom to understand situations. You then get to know others in relationships so you can speak in and love them and build them up and encourage them and bring consolation. But I wish all of you did that. I have permission, I think, from the text to say, sometimes I do this, sometimes I don't do this. Sometimes I just enjoy hanging out with you and I don't speak God's word as I should. Some of you, you know God's word very well, but you don't speak it, not very frequently, not in relationship. Others of you, you cannot yet because you don't know his word very well. It's not something you're studying or getting to know. And so when you speak to others, you speak what you know, and it's not his word as it ought be as you mature in the faith. But we're here to say, I wish all of you did that. And I would add this, in relationship inside of this church, not just announcing it to the world through some platform that's actually not generally helpful. But Paul's point is, whatever you do, don't do it for yourself. You do it for the building up of others there's a large amount of alleged prophecy, says one commentator, which is nothing more than another rather spiritualized way of manipulating another person. And so it's absolutely critical, we say, in community, we want to speak God's word to each other, not just in private moments where we exercise influence and call it prophecy. We have to be careful. Our hearts are deceptive. But I do want you to imagine all of us speaking the word of God that's been revealed to us by his spirit to the people of God that he's put us in relationship with. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I need reminders all the time. We would be a doctrinally bound community speaking his word and living consistently, wouldn't we? We would be a repenting community. We would be a community that have other people frequently helping us compare our lives, interpret our lives against the scripture's teaching of what should give life and hope and freedom. And none of us grow in maturity to the point where we don't need this. And we desire to help you. So at Christ Community, we want you to be in our community groups where we're studying scripture and asking for God to help us learn to apply it to each other's lives. Discipleship is about moments of life interpretation under the authority of God's word. And we're trying to do that with a theological grid for you. Again, I mentioned our contextualized podcast. It's just a podcast. It's kind of fun. AJ and I, or one of the elders, will sit with him and talk for 25 minutes. No prep, just talk about the scriptures. It's one of my favorite parts of the week. Why? We're just talking about the Bible. And we're seeing God's word prevail in the New Testament church in Acts. Access the things that we're asking you to access for the sake of you being equipped to then use God's word to build up other people. Now, what about tongues here? I should have just started with this. Many of us in this room, whether in our childhood or in our adult life, maybe have had experience in a Pentecostal context, 
where tongues were there. Maybe there was interpretation, maybe there was not. I'll never forget going to a high school retreat with a friend in high school. And they asked all the high school kids to go up and we were going to be prayed for because our culture is difficult. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by tongues I could not understand. I had never experienced it. I grew up a Southern Baptist. I was terrified. It was not long ago, less than a year ago, I was running around Indian Trails track. And it was early, early in the morning. The sun had just come up. It was just me. And there was a woman walking the track. And she was loud. And as I got close, I heard her praying in tongues as loud as she possibly would be praying. And so I don't even know if I should share this with you. But I did pray and say, Lord, if I'm supposed to understand it, would you give me understanding? And so it took me a half a mile to run around because my loop was bigger than her loop. I could understand her the next time. I have no idea if she was choosing to speak in English or if God wanted me to hear what she was saying. But the point is, I'm not as commonly exposed to this, and I've studied the scriptures as you may be. Some of you have had far more experiences than others. What do we make of it? Here's the question. Why do we not speak in tongues here at Christ Community Church? First of all, we do not speak in tongues here because we're told in the scriptures not to prioritize it. That comes to us right out of 1 Corinthians 14. We are told to prioritize speaking God's word from his revealed word to other people's minds using our minds so that they can comprehend it. That's what we're told to desire. So that's one reason. A second reason is we do not expect any new revelation from God by means of individual prophecy or individual tongues because God has fully and finally revealed himself in his word. And so to that Since we believe that what Paul is describing here has ceased. He's talking about prophecy needing an interpretation because he's saying God would speak to you as was happening in the apostolic age. Now God is free to work out of bounds. We believe that. I believe that. But that said, he is also a God of completed revelation of the work that he's done in his son. So We will speak words of sense by faith until it's replaced by sight. He's a God of clear communication and revelation of his gospel, so we don't desire or expect new revelation, whether by tongues or by individual prophecy. But this does not mean that we don't believe the Spirit groans so deeply inside of us that sometimes the Spirit groans too deep for words. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8? All creation groans for redemption and you, you Christian, in your weakness, when you can't even find words because you hurt so bad or you're so afraid, the spirit inside you will groan in a way that words could never express. So we do expect such deep groaning and work by God's spirit in us. Now, verses 6 to 25, I think, I won't spend long on it. They just deepen the appeal, Okay. So let me go through the crux of that argument. There's three things that I see there. And then we actually are going to wrap up. First of all, we should understand that if we are to pursue love and be about building up the church, there's a sense in which prophecy, speaking God's word, his revealed word, enables that to happen. But tongues are limited. They're incomplete. They can't accomplish these primary focus areas that Paul gives to us. So first, we should be concerned about communicating intelligibly. And tongues are limited in that regard. That's what Paul is saying in this chapter. Tongues, verse 6, have no benefit to the hearer unless they also come with some revelation. You have that in verse 6. He gives examples. He calls them lifeless instruments. 
So he says, think of a flute or a harp. If they give no distinct notes, how is anyone going to know what's being played? Picture, as gifted as Clinton and Hannah are, picture them just starting out today playing random notes. And we would all be here like, what are you guys doing? We don't understand that. Like, we want to join in with you, but we don't understand. What are you doing? Another example, Paul says, no offense, musicians, it's because you're gifted enough to do that if you wanted Or he says a bugle. If a bugle gives indistinct sounds, how's the army going to know what to do? The way the bugle plays different tones indicates to the army when to be prepared for battle and how to go about it. He says the same with you. If you speak in tongues, how will others know what is being said? If, If someone prays or speaks in tongues and gives thanks, a foreigner, an outsider, they won't be able to say thanks with you. They won't understand what you're saying. He actually uses an illustration. He says, if that's the case, I may as well be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. The Greek word there for foreigner is the word from which we get barbaric. And so to the Greeks, whenever someone would speak a language they didn't know, they assumed they had no intellect. They were not. They were just babbling. They were barbaric. So the illustration is pretty offensive there. He's saying to us that our goal in communication should always be to communicate to the hearer, to build them up. I have the most beautiful niece. She has Down syndrome, adopted it from China from my sister and her husband. And we didn't know when she was adopted that she wouldn't be able to speak. She grunts and she's animated, but she is phenomenal at sign language. And we've all, when we get together for vacation, we have to learn sign language. We can kind of understand the grunts of frustration or happiness, but we don't understand what she's asking for without a language that communicates. That's what Paul is saying here. The goal of being in the body and loving others is to communicate intelligibly, and tongues are incomplete in that regard, then and now. Next thing. We're also to concern ourselves with maturing holistically or wholly. So with tongues, he says, the mind is unfruitful. Verse 13, he says, I don't want to just pray with my spirit. I want to pray with my mind. I want to praise with my mind. I want to sing with my mind. We have that there. He says, maturity looks like the mind understanding the law and gospel of God and communicating that to others. That's what maturity looks like. That's what love looks like. Speaking the word of God from my mind to the mind of the people of God. And so Paul says, I would rather speak five intelligible words with my mind than 10,000. He wants us to have whole person maturity. And you see it right there in verse 20. He says, I want you to be grown up. Do not be children in your thinking. Do you see that? Be infants in your evil, but not in your thinking. In other words, the way that the Holy Spirit of God works is that the Spirit works in our minds to understand the law of God, to have it be applied to our lives. So when we realize we cannot fully keep the law of God, we understand the Christ of God. And then doesn't the scripture tell us, 2 Corinthians 10, we're to take every thought in our mind captive to Christ. So underneath all of this, Paul's saying, your maturity in a way is at stake. And I don't want you just to be about incomprehensible feeling and desires. I want you to be about clear thought. I want your mind to check your feelings. That's what he's saying here. Isn't it true that when we struggle with evil, We give in to sinful lust or desire. 
that so often we follow deceitful desires and we do not allow our mind to convince our desires of what is out of accord with God's will? So this chapter, it starts with tongues and prophecy, but he ends up talking about maturity with your mind. And then thirdly, if we're to build up others, we must concern ourselves with impacting outsiders. The word for outsider, verse 16, you know, how are they going to know what you're saying? How can they say amen? You may be giving thanks well enough, but they won't understand. The word for outsider in Greek is idiotes. It's the word from which we get idiot. It doesn't mean that they're, they're missing something. It means they don't understand. That's what's being said here. And so chances are, Paul's saying, it may be a person who's regularly present in your worship at Corinth and they just don't quite understand the gospel yet. But if you speak in a language they can't comprehend, how will they ever understand the gospel? And so then he has this hard section in verse 21 to 25, and I'm not going to get too deep into it, but I will say this. He basically gets to the point where he asks a question. He says, imagine an outsider walking in. And the outsider, everybody's speaking in an unknown language. It's just noise. Won't they say you're crazy? Is the beautiful, clear gospel that will save them from their sin going to be made clear through that? Or he said, now imagine that they walk in and all of you are speaking God's word to each other and you're living lives where you help interpret God's word with each other. Then what would happen? And he goes right into the realm of mission, doesn't he? He says, essentially, then you have an outsider who will say, God is really with you and their heart will be exposed to their need for this God. And he basically summarizes Hebrews chapter four where the word of God is sharp and it's active and it exposes the heart. And next thing you know, you have an outsider who's now a believer. And prophecy was helpful in the mission as well as in the maturing. Okay, three questions, and I'm going to show you how a beautiful way I think this takes us to the Lord's Supper. Forgive me for how long this is. Do I pursue love and spiritual maturity for the building up of the church? Ask yourself that question. Do you pursue love and spiritual maturity for yourself? Why are you here? Why am I here? It's an application question that comes out of this chapter. Next question. Am I an infant in evil, but maturing in my thinking and my desires? Or, scary and sad, the older I get, I realize sometimes my evil, I'm very sophisticated and mature in how I pull it off so others won't see. Which means I'm an infant in my spiritual maturity. Are you an infant in evil, yet growing in your maturity in your mind, and it's checking all of your desires? That's a question that should come out of this text. Thirdly, am I convicted about telling and hearing God's word, convicted that I need to know his revealed word and I need to speak his word from my mind to the mind of the people that he's asked me to intersect by his spirit that that is what he wants me to do to build up his church and to show his love. Are you convinced and convicted about doing that? Pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual maturity for the building up of the body. None of us are where we want to be in those regards. What's amazing is once again, we see a picture that fits only one person who pursued perfect love, whose perfect obedience, so we'll call that perfect maturity of his father, was lived out in everything he did, and it was never for himself. 
It was for the building up of the church that God gave to him. This describes Jesus. And all of his prophetic authority and all the ways that he spoke and all the ways that he loved. And so as we go to the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand with me that Christ is the fulfillment of this. And how did he build the church up? What did he actually end up doing? He spent his life. He laid his life down. All the gifts he had, all the righteousness he had to give, his giving himself for the building up of the whole body was for him to take our sin upon himself, even though he was the one who should not have deserved such wrath and such suffering. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we have in Christ the great model for one who pursued love and lived out in perfect maturity the life God called him to do for the building up of the body. And I won't take time now, but I want to point you to the very back of your bulletin. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 to 6 is there. I think it's a perfect picture of Jesus fulfilling everything in this whole chapter. So let me just read it, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Isaiah the prophet's talking, and he's describing this gift of prophecy, if you will. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, so a tongue who communicates with God, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who's weary. What does that sound like? Building up, encouragement, consolation. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. What does that sound like? Perfect maturity and obedience. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. My cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who does that describe? the one who endured suffering for us, who when he exuded the gift that he had as being the word of God in the flesh, the prophet of prophets, he was opposed and rejected and suffered the cursed death on the cross. So folks, I want to just challenge you, be about the building up of this body as Jesus laid his life down to build us up and rescue us before our Holy Father. Um, If there's anything unclear in this, I encourage you to try to listen to it again. We're going to touch it again next week. Let's pray. Father, would you help me and help us to be prophetic in how we love one another? We know that you're going to give gifts of prophecy in a sense to some in this room who will be understanding your word in particular ways to speak your revealed word in moments for another person's edification and building up. We pray for that. We pray that we would all do it. We pray there'd be nothing incomprehensible or unclear about what we do here, that you receive glory and praise. We thank you for your word revealed. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.